Open with me this morning to Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34 is where we'll be this morning. We uh, have been in Mark for a good number of months. Uh, By the time we're through, it'll be uh, about two years that we will have spent in this book. And uh, jokingly, Clay and Melissa, uh, I'll just call them out for a second. I I said they they had joked about this uh, a little while back. They said, you know, but... We'll have a baby before he's through with the book of Mark. And uh, lo and behold, they probably will. Uh, they, are, they are pregnant and due uh, about the time or a little before we'll probably be through with the book of Mark. But uh, I know it's, a, it's been a long process in this book, but from my vantage, it's been so worth it. It's so worth it when we can take the word of God and we can pour over the word of God and we go to it instead of going to what some creative... Uh, mind can think of to bring to the table. I'm not that creative and I, I, I don't want to have to be coming up with things to say to you every week. I'm so thankful that God has written a book, aren't you? Y'all, y'all awake this morning? All right. I'm so thankful that God has indeed written a book. Uh, you don't want me to be up here just preaching pet peeves every week, you know, um, because I just called Clay and Melissa out for having a baby. You know, you never know what I might call you out for, you know, if, if I'm just preaching my pet peeves. Well, last week we looked at uh, the passage before this, and the title for the sermon was When God Seems Like a Fairy Tale. Two weeks before that, or two weeks ago, we looked at the passage prior to that, and the title for the sermon was When God Gets in the Way. Well, today we look at this passage. Verses 28 to 34, and the title for this sermon is, When God is a List Instead of a Love. When God is a List Instead of a Love. Um, Husbands, any of you have high-maintenance wives? See, I didn't expect anybody to actually raise their hands on that. If your spouse is gone, you you might take a chance on that, but you're thinking, no, someone will see me lift my hand, and they will report that back to my wife. So I don't expect you to answer that. I'll just, I'll just throw myself out here a little bit. My wife's sitting right down here. Sometimes I have a high-maintenance wife. You could see her face right now. But she would also say sometimes she has a high-maintenance husband. That's right. <laughs> sometimes I, I want to do a good job of loving my wife, and I want to do the things that that a husband should do, but we learned a long time ago that there are some things that she will want me to do that I'm so clueless I won't do them unless she gives me a list. Isn't that right? That's right, yeah. Sometimes that's the truth. Well, it's not that I don't love her, it's that I'm just that way. We come to a passage today where there is a scribe, one who is a teacher of the word of God, a teacher of the law, who is meant to lead people to love God more than anything else. And he comes to Jesus and he asks this question, what is the most important commandment? I've found myself at times asking that question. Now, I'll hear this over lunch. Uh, This will be an interesting lunch for me uh, with my wife. But uh, at times... I just want to say, what, what's most important? Because I don't know that I can get it all. What's most important? Can I, can I get a list for that? Now, does that sound loving to you? 
No. Doesn't sound loving at all. If I show up, the illustration I've used before, if I show up with flowers to the door and my wife answers the door and she says, what's this for? And I say to her, well, you know, 16 years ago we entered into a contract and part of that contract is it obligates me to bring you things like this. So I'm bringing you these things today just because, you know, it's part of the deal. That's not very loving. But if, again, I show up to her and I say, I'm bringing you this today because I want you to know that I was thinking of you. And I love you more than anything, and I just want you to know how special you are to me. That's a little different. We see this scribe come to Jesus today, and in looking at the law, he says to him, what's the most important? Let's look at this passage together. And one of the scribes, verse 28, came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I come to this text, and God, I know my shortcomings. I know that I am unable to speak with any power of my own that will impact and change lives for their good and for your glory. So, God, I am totally dependent on you, your Holy Spirit, to be our teacher today, that you would open ears and hearts and eyes to the truth of the gospel. You would draw men and women, children to yourself, And God, that we would walk away here today praising you and you alone. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this scribe comes to Jesus. And if you'll remember, in the context here of the entire book or or the entire chapter here, we go backwards. And first, there there was one group that came. There were the Pharisees and the Herodians, two groups that really should not be in cohorts or, or cahoots with, with one another. They come and they question Jesus because they're trying to trap him. The word is the same word that you would use to trap an animal. They see him as nothing more than something that needs to be removed from their lives. And they want to trap him. And Jesus confounds them. They leave being rejected. They send another group. The Sadducees come. They don't believe in the resurrection. Jesus here takes one of their questions and he spins it around. They also leave dejected. He has utterly handled their question and confused them and left them wondering. And here we see this particular scribe. And he comes with this question. Which commandment is the most important of all? Well, the question that we have to ask ourselves is, is this part of this same trap? What's his motivation for asking this question? And I think the answer is yes, this is part of the same trap. 
This is the third question coming from this group, the Sanhedrin. And so the scribe here comes and his motivation is, I want to trap Jesus. Their hopes are, when asking such a question of, what's the most important from the one who is the teacher of the law? Their hope is that Jesus will come up with something totally original that is outside of the law of Moses. That's their hope. That's what they're accusing him of, that he teaches things that are contrary to our doctrine, to our law. And so they send the scribe and he says, what's the most important? Well, they're hoping that they can trap him by him answering with something that is outside of the law of Moses, the book of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. And that's part of the motive here. They want him to trap himself. They want the people to see him for a heretic. They want the people to see him for one who teaches outside of what God has given them through Moses. And therefore, if the people can lose confidence in him, then they will begin to leave him and he is eradicated from their operation. But I think there's a second motive here. I think there's another motive here with this scribe coming, and it's a personal one. Yes, he's been given, I think, his, his orders, his directive from the Sanhedrin. Go and ask this question, this question. If the other two didn't work, this one will hopefully work. But I think there's another motive. I think he comes out of a sense of frustration and desperation. Think about it. The Pharisees and the scribes, this, the Sadducees rejected it, but they had taken the law of God, the law of Moses. They had taken it and they had gone well beyond what God had said to them. And they had created 613 external laws outside of the original word of God. 613. There were 365 that were negative laws and there were 248 that were positive. 613. It's pretty daunting, isn't it? I mean, it's pretty daunting to have to maybe keep up with. There was no way that anyone could keep them all. I think what the scribe does here is he comes to Jesus and he does what any of us would do when he is frustrated and desperate and he realizes, I can't keep this. I'm the teacher of this and I can't keep all of this. And I think he comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, what's the most important? And the hole that I dug this morning with my wife that I will have to repair this afternoon. It was, it was an attempt at a really good illustration and it really just bombed it. I'm really nervous about ending this sermon and walking out of here today. But uh, he, the scribe comes and I think he reveals something true of himself and probably true about all of us. He looks at the law and he says, Jesus There's no way that I can do all of this. Jesus, if you could boil it down to the greatest, the most important, Jesus, that would be wonderful for me. Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? This is the cry of the human heart. The cry of all religion is, what must I do to be accepted by God? What one thing we see this in other parts of Scripture We see this with the rich young ruler. The ruler asked Jesus, he said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This was one who was a ruler among the Pharisees. 
And he comes and he reveals this frustration. What have I got to do, Jesus? I I know all of this extra. I know all of these 613, but I can't keep them all. What have I got to do to be good? What have I got to do to inherit eternal life? We saw this also in the guard who kept Paul and Silas in the prison. If you remember the story in Acts chapter 16, about midnight, Paul and Silas were locked away for preaching the gospel. They had been put into the inner stocks and there was a guard who was put over them, watching them. And they were about midnight singing praises to God. Lo and behold, God intervenes and opens the prison doors and the chains fall off. The shackles are gone and the prison guard is rendered useless. He wakes up from that and he sees that the prison doors are open. And he assumes within himself, he assumes, well, they're all gone and I will have to go and answer for this. And I'll be forced to give an answer for why all the prisoners have escaped. And about the time that he takes his sword and rather than facing the emperor, he's about to thrust his sword through himself. Paul calls out from the distance, from the from the darkness, and he says, don't do yourself any harm, for we're all here. None of us have left. The prison guard experienced a changed life by the gospel of Jesus Christ. The prison guard goes and he takes a torch and he goes running into where they are. And he sees that all the prisoners, not just Paul and Silas, but all of them are there. None of them have left. He's so broken by that. And he sees what is lacking in his own life. And he says to them, sirs, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is the great question of the human soul. What have I got to do to be right with God? What have I got to do to have eternal life? All of us know that we have offended God in some way and we must make restitution. And within us, there is this this calling to try to please God. And I think we see this here in the scribe. Jesus, what's the most important of all the commandments? If I can't keep them all, what's the big one? Maybe if I keep that one, maybe in the end that will be enough. But you see, religion, it leaves you frustrated and desperate. Trying to work your way to God leaves you frustrated and desperate, wondering, is it enough? God, though, wants your ferocious devotion. God wants ferocious devotion for you. In verses 29 and 30, listen to what Jesus says. The scribe says, what's the most important commandment? And Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Jesus here quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 5. It's called the Shema. Shema means to hear. And this would have been very familiar to those Jews of the day. They repeated this twice a day. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, they knew very well. So when Jesus here says to the scribe, to the teacher of the law, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Everything in him would have said, Amen. Amen. That is right. 
He alone, Jesus is saying, he alone is God. The Lord is one. There are not many gods. There are not many gods. There are not many names for the same God. We live in a world where it says that it really doesn't matter what you believe. As long as you believe something sincerely enough, God will understand that in whatever you are focusing your devotion to, you are really focusing it toward him. Because though you may not know him by name, you mean him. It couldn't be any further from the truth because the word tells us that there is no other name under heaven whereby men must be saved. Then by the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth and the life. No man comes to the father but by me. Romans chapter 10 talks about that they won't be able to believe. They won't be able to call on the name of the Lord unless they believe. And how will they believe unless they hear? How will they hear unless we preach to them? Jesus here is making more than a statement to Jews about their particular God. He is saying to them, there is one God. There is one God. And that's not popular preaching today. We want to live in a world where we believe that there are multiple gods. And if not multiple gods, then at least multiple names for that one God. Jesus here is saying there is one. He is Lord of all, worthy of all praise, of all people. It's what he means in 1 Timothy. It's what Paul means when he writes in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. Be honor and glory forever and ever. He goes on to write in chapter 2, verse 5, verses 3 through 6, actually. This is good. It is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires for all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Let me ask you something, church. If there is one God, as Scripture attests to, if there's one God, like Jesus claims, then what should be our response? If there's one God, and He truly is God over all, not God in the sense of being something carved out of wood or stone that you would make Temporal sacrifices to. But if he's truly God, creator and sustainer, Lord, holy over all, then what should be our response? Jesus gives him that response. Since there is one God, then we should love him. We should love him with all of our heart. We should love him with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. In one sense, when Jesus here piles up these words, in one sense, it's simply to say, love him completely. But I think it helps us if we will also look at those individually. In the language of the day, when someone were to say, 
love him with all of your heart. In one sense, it is meaning that we would love him with all of our intellect. The heart was the very core of who you are. It's the real you. It's who you are that no one else knows. With all of your heart, with all of your soul, the soul was the emotions. Jesus himself said, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful. The mind here has to do with your will or your intentions. And your strength has to do with your physical decisions or your choices. In other words, what Jesus here is saying, since there is one God, you teacher of Israel and you who sit here today, since there is one true holy God, we are to love him completely with all that we are. With all that we really are, with all that we really feel with all of our intentions and motives, with all that we actually do, we are always to love God completely. Now, let me ask you this. Is that possible? If we're honest with ourselves, we'll say no. I've asked that question before in groups, and I'll say, Did you love, have you loved God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength this week? And occasionally there will be a hand that will go up and say, Yes, I, I did that this week. The reality is, you haven't done that in the last five minutes. Your mind wanders. Your motives are not always pure. You, it's impossible for us to love God completely, always, with all that we are and have. You say, well, boy, that's a great word today. It's very encouraging and motivating. I'll leave here and... That's, that'll get me through the week. <laughs> Reality is that's impossible. And then Jesus adds to it and he says the second is like it. You should love your neighbor as yourself. Now what Jesus is not saying here is he's not saying what some contemporary preachers and teachers say. That if you're going to really learn how to love people, you've got to first learn how to love yourself. I mean, honestly, look around. Do we need any help loving ourselves? My wife did not have to remind me today to put clothes on. Aren't you glad? My wife today did not have to remind me to feed myself. I didn't walk through the house and my children say, Dad, you stink. You should take a shower. No one has to remind me of that. Why? Because I naturally care for myself. The last thing we need is any more... Oprahisms about how we need to think positively about ourselves and we don't need to just put on a smile and think positively and face the day. It's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. In the same way that you get up and no one has to tell you to care for yourself, look around and look to the needs of others and meet those needs. Care for your brothers and your sisters. When this was originally written, Leviticus, Jesus here is quoting from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. When it's originally stated, it's stated in the context of them loving simply their brothers, those who were fellow Israelites. Later, it becomes expanded to those outside of Israel, to Gentiles, those who are those who are aliens living in your land. Jesus, though, expands it all the more. And he says to them, love not just those who are of the same nationality. 
not just those who are foreign, who have moved into your country, but love even those who are your enemies. Love those who hate you and who persecute you. Let me ask you that this is is that possible? In your own strength, well, I would say no. You may have great moments and have occasions where you do really well in loving an enemy. And you may walk away. And the minute you walk away and tell someone else, you know, I was really, uh, really pretty good today. I, I, uh, I treated my brother with kindness. He's my enemy. He hates me, but I was the better man. What have you done? You've stopped loving God in the way you should love God, and you've loved yourself over and above God. You see, this whole thing is impossible. And Jesus here says to the scribe, what's the greatest commandment? Love God completely and love your neighbor as yourself. And if we're honest, we have to come to the end of that and say, that doesn't help, Jesus. See, the reality is you can take 613 commands and you can reduce them to two and you still can't live up to it. You can't reduce the requirements of God to something that you can handle, that you can manage. Have you ever thought about why? Well, I'm going to skip that. I'm going to go on. Jesus rightly sums up the entire law into two commands, but we can't even live up to that. Religion, look at what happens when Jesus reduces these, the, the entire law to these two commands. Religion knows the right answers and religion affirms the right actions. Verse 32, the scribe said to him, you're right, teacher. As if Jesus needed anyone to tell him he was right. As if he needed any validation or verification from those that were the keepers of the law to tell him that he, the law, The word was right. You're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. Jesus needs no one to affirm him. And just as this religious scribe thinks that if he knows the right answers and says the right things, believes the right way, that he will somehow be acceptable in the eyes of God. Just as he is wrong, I would say to you, you also are wrong. Here's a man who devoted his entire life to knowing the right answers, to knowing the right information. And I would, listen to me, I would say that in every church, in this church, There are people who come and they sit every single week and they have listened to sermon after sermon after sermon. Bible study after Bible study after Bible study. Discipleship training after discipleship training. Whatever course it may be. And we can spit out a lot of the right answers, can't we? We can, right? I can say to you, uh, pose a question to you and you can a lot of times give me the right answer. But giving the right answer is not what makes us right with God. It can't. This scribe thinks, well, I will affirm Jesus in this. You've answered rightly, teacher. There are people in churches, for, they've been there for years, and they've heard it, and they can spit out the data like a computer or a calculator or a smartphone. You know, this week, the, uh, the iPhone 
Ethan came in, iPhone. What's what's the voice? Is it Siri? Siri. Siri is this voice that you could talk to on the iPhone. You can ask Siri all sorts of questions. What's the weather like today, Siri? The weather in Greer, South Carolina, will be sunny with a high of 60 degrees. Wow, Siri, that was great. You're welcome. You know, she'll talk to you. You know, you can ask her all sorts of things. What should I eat today, Siri? Within a five-mile radius of where you are, there are these restaurants. She will make suggestions for you. Siri, I'm having a little trouble with my homework. What's the square root of whatever? The square root of whatever is nothing because that's not a number. You know, she'll talk to you, right? Siri knows the right answers. But is Siri an authentic, genuine, living person? No. Siri is data spit out of a program that goes to the Internet and pulls these things and spits them back to you. And I wonder if we're not raising up Christians to believe or or, or people to believe that they're genuine Christians when they are nothing more than Siri. Who view the Bible as nothing more than a book that is a reference book that they can go to and find the right answers and spit those out and impress one another. In reality, we are not any closer or any more authentic, genuine, living believers than Siri is behind the screen of the iPhone. Religion knows the right answers. Religion also affirms the right actions. In verse 33, he says, and To love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than of all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. You've got to keep in mind where they're at when he says this. The scribe spits this out and says, Jesus, you've answered rightly. This is so much more than all burnt offerings and all sacrifices. They are in the midst of the temple complex. They're looking around and it is Passover and there are sacrifices and people preparing for these sacrifices. All around them. And the word structure here, it's it's pretty important. The burnt offerings talks about those things that are that those animals that would be uh, put on the altar and completely consumed. Sacrifices means even those small things that are given to God. So everything in between, even those complete sacrifices all the way to the little things, none of it, none of it, none of it will achieve loving God completely and loving your brother, loving your neighbor as yourself. Religion affirms the right actions. The scribe knew what was right. Yet he found himself back here at the altar every year. He found himself frustrated and Desperate, asking Jesus questions like, Jesus, what's the most important? Why? Because knowing the right answers, it's not enough. And as hard as you try, as I've already said, 
no matter how far you boil it down, from 613 all the way down to 2, you still can't live up to it. And then Jesus closes with this, and he says, when he sees how the man, the scribe, answers wisely, he says to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Not far. And what a statement this must have been to all those standing around watching this. This was was a teacher of the law. Surely if anyone is right with God, this man is right with God. And those that had traveled in from all over the place to come and make this annual sacrifice. Hear Jesus say to this one who is surely right with God. You're not far from the kingdom of God. You ever heard the phrase, um, close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades? No, religion will get you close, but it will not get you in. Religion will help you know the right answers. It will help you to know how to behave. But in the end, knowledge and morality will not save you. Jesus looks at this and he tears it down. And this is this is a lot of what Jesus comes to do. He spends so much of his time showing that religion is so damning. Think about it. I mean, he he was accused of being a friend of sinners because he would eat with tax collectors and he would have discussions with prostitutes. Yet, what did he spend the bulk of his time refuting? Religion. He said to these Pharisees and scribes, you are whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, but on the inside, you're really just full of dead men's bones. And I wonder if that's the word that we need to hear today. That there is nothing about this building that will make us acceptable before God. There's nothing about this hour that will make us pleasing to God. There is nothing here that that we can memorize and make us pleasing to God. There's no action that we can take when we leave this place that will make us pleasing to God. If we think that we can come and in our own strength pick this thing up and somehow make ourselves right with God, we are mistaken. We come with the same attitude of this scribe and we will in the end hear the same thing that the scribe heard. You're not far from the kingdom of God. I wonder how many who have been in church all of their lives, who have served in various capacities, who have done this or done that, will in the end hear, depart from me. I never knew you. See, the reality is religion will leave you frustrated and desperate, longing, what is the one thing that I must do? Religion will tell you that you can know the right things and do the right things. And in the end, Jesus will say that none of those things will make you right. And that's the great statement of the gospel, that God in his grace and in his mercy looks down on humanity Not down in a condescending way, although he could have looked down and passed judgment and been totally right. But instead, he held back from that. And he sent his own son 
And Jesus Christ, who was fully God, who had always existed, who had received the worship of angels in heaven, leaves heaven. Identifies with us completely in every way except for one way. He never sinned. He took on flesh. He went through what we go through. He encountered suffering and hardship and poverty and hunger. All sorts of emotions. But he never sinned. He lived 33 years on this planet, walking real dirt on this planet, facing real temptation, and he never once gave in to that temptation. He didn't buy into the lie that it's what you know or what you do, but he never once disobeyed. The Bible says that God, when it was in the fullness of time, that God was pleased to take his son and place him on a cross. Listen to me. Don't be distracted. Listen to me. Please the Father. You need to hear this. It pleased the Father to take His own Son, who had done no wrong, who deserved no condemnation, who deserved no judgment whatsoever. And instead of taking His wrath and pouring it out on humanity, who had done all sorts of wrong, who had rebelled against God in ways that earned them separation and death and the wrath of God forever. Instead of Him pouring His wrath out on them, it pleased Him to take His Son who knew no sin and put Him on the cross and make Him sin for us and to pour the wrath that was meant for you and I on His own Son so that you and I would not have to face that condemnation, that judgment, and that wrath. That if we would, by faith, look to Jesus Christ as our hope of salvation... As the gift of salvation from God. That we might have His right life applied to us. And that He would have our wrong, sinful life applied to Him. The Bible says that when He was crucified on that cross, that they took Him down and they put Him in the tomb. And for three days He was in the earth, dead. Not just, not just unconscious, but dead. And three days later, just as it pleased the Father to put His Son on the cross, it also pleased the Father in what the Son had done by going to the cross. Fully pleased Him. Satisfied His wrath completely. And God validated Jesus' work on the cross by raising Him from the dead. And that all those who had by faith trusted in what Christ had done and received the gift of salvation would also one day rise. See, religion will leave you frustrated and desperate. It will tell you all sorts of lies, but in the end, you will be close. But the gospel is the only thing that will truly save. And it is resting. It is the sweetest relief to know that my acceptance with God does not rely on my ability to keep any law. My acceptance with the Father is on the fact that my Savior has kept it completely. And He has received all of my punishment. And I would beg you today to look at your own life and ask yourself the question, are you relying on keeping something? On doing something? On knowing something? Is there really this tug within you that says, I'm frustrated and desperate. There has to be something else. 
Could it be that the Spirit of God is calling you to Himself? You've heard the gospel this morning. I beg of you, turn from your religion and your sin and yourself and trust Christ and live. Let's pray. Jesus, this morning I pray, God, that you would take the passage that's been preached this morning. God, that you would open hearts to hear. God, that you would breathe new life. And God, that this morning that you would call men and women out of death into the life that is provided through the finished work of Jesus Christ. God, I pray that you would do it for your own glory. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. We're going to respond now. Reflect and respond. We reflect intentionally because we don't need to simply hear the Word of God.